Welcome to an unexpected eighth episode of the Reimagining Defence podcast. Unexpected, as Jakey and I called it quits after doing the seven-episode bundle on exponential technologies. But then came along the chance to interview Chris Brose, author of The Kill Chain, a book that, to quote General Petraeus, is an exceptional and exceptionally stimulating guide to thinking about the military and technological revolutions that will produce a fundamental change to the character of war. Chris is currently Chief Strategy Officer for Angel Industries, probably one of the hottest defence startups in the market right now. And prior to that, he served as the youngest ever staff director of the Senate Armed Services Committee. Having been a speechwriter to two Secretaries of State, Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice, you'll enjoy listening to his vivid description of what's to come. In this episode, we talked to Chris about militaries getting their asses handed to them, hunger games for loitering munitions, and how special forces will be the battle lab that helps pathfind our way to a new future. Chris, thanks so much for joining JK and I on this podcast. It's uh, it's taken a little longer than we would have liked to get us all together. I think it's evening where I am, midday where JK is, and morning where you are. So thanks for persevering with us as we stitch this across the three different time zones. We are really grateful for your time today. No, it's a pleasure's mine. It's great to be with you guys and really looking forward to the conversation. Thank you. So let's uh, just dive straight in with the first question. At the beginning of your book, there's this eye-catching line from a DOD official who I believe ran many of the war games in the Obama administration, and it's really stuck in my mind. I think he said something like, when we fight China or Russia, Blue gets his ass handed to it. Could you elaborate on that and your reason for writing the book? Yeah, I, I think that is, uh, in a nutshell, why I wrote the book. Um, you know, this is kind of a um, kind of a growing problem that I think many in the DoD were seeing. Uh, many of us, when I was working in the United States Senate, were seeing, uh, which was the steady but accelerating erosion of America's mil- military technological advantage. And you know, you, you have a hard time assessing, you know, how how are we doing? How are we matching up? And um, things like war games, tabletop exercises, you know, these are net assessments. I mean, these are the ways that. Uh, you can kind of get closest to figuring out, you know, how, how bad is the problem really? And, you know, what we were seeing for, for really years, I mean, year after year after year, um, was just uh, the, the traditional force that the United States was building and the traditional ways in which it was planning to use it was just not closing. Uh, it wasn't getting the job done in terms of the concepts of operation, the uh, kind of objectives that were being set for the joint force, particularly against uh, China and Russia, um, as far as the defensive kind of deterrent uh, military operations that um, you know that were our stated policy objectives. Um, so to elaborate on that, what that means is, you know, if you kind of take a step back, I think, you know, this was not an accident and it was not, you know, like a hurricane or an earthquake that hit us unexpectedly one day. Um, this was the result of a 20 to 25 year concerted effort to disrupt, um, you know, largely by China to a lesser extent, Russia, um, the ways and means of, you know, the U.S. military. And, you know, they went to school on us. They looked at how the United States builds its force and more importantly, all of the underlying assumptions on which that force and how we project power rests. Um, and, you know, I think the, uh, the result, you know, in the, in the case of China uh, is what they refer to as systems destruction warfare, uh, which is the sort of systematic buildup and modernization of advanced military capabilities to call into question all of the underlying assumptions on which America projects power. So, you know, specifically the ability to go after our forward military bases, you know, to deny us the sanctuary on which, you know, for a generation, U.S. military operations have rested to build up uh, forces in large forward uh, locations, uh, the ability to control the timing and tempo of military operations. Um, the ability to enter the battlefield at any point with military overmatch, the ability to move, shoot, and communicate with impunity. Um, these are the things that they have been systematically working to take away from us. 
um, having access to space, having access to information, command and control, intelligence, um, logistics, the electromagnetic spectrum. Again, all of these things that have become uh, like oxygen for the United States military, things that we've always expected would be there when we need them to the extent that we even start, you know, stop thinking about them. Um, you know, and, and those are the things that are, that are increasingly at risk, our access to those domains and enabling capabilities. Um, and the result is, you know, kind of in war game after war game, what we've been seeing is the ways and means of, you know, kind of traditional U.S. military operations are just not getting the job done. And I think this is largely why I wrote the book, was to call attention to this problem and more importantly, try to begin thinking about what do we do about it? Um, and this is very much the conversation that's now happening in earnest, has been for some some couple of years, um, but is now happening in earnest in Washington with, uh, you know, the same kinds of comments and statements coming out of senior military leaders. You know, when you look at General C.Q. Brown, chief of staff of the United States Air Force, talking about the need to accelerate change or lose, um, all of the emphasis that the commandant of the Marine Corps is putting on transforming the force um, they're not doing that because they believe that business as usual is going to work for them in the future and that the traditional force they have is going to be the force they need in the future. They're doing it because, you know, again, to go back to that, uh, to that one sentence, they believe that if they do not change and change quickly, uh, they will not be able to do what the nation uh, asks them to do, not in the distant future, but in the near future. And you know, this was very alarming to me when I worked in the Senate. It's alarming to me now. It's why I wrote the book, and it's I think the the greatest question that you know our defense establishment in the U.S. and I would argue broadly uh, across the alliance uh, really needs to wrestle with. And Chris, your point on alarming for the sort of lay person listening in, and I don't know whether you can sort of um, say this, but can you give a feel for just how costly it was for Blue, you know, the the home team? in those war games? You know, what did the losses look like? Um, they, to be concrete about it, I mean, they looked like uh, forward military bases uh, being cratered and sort of uh, rendered inoperable by uh, long-range ballistic missiles, long-range uh, cruise missiles, um, increasingly hypersonic weapons. It looked like uh, sea bases in the form of aircraft carriers or large amphibious ships um, knocked out of the fight completely or sunk altogether. It looked like huge amounts of uh, advanced aircraft, you know, to include fifth generation aircraft um, killed on the runways before they even got airborne. Um, it looked like fourth generation, you know, aircraft not even in the fight because they can't penetrate. Um, the, the kind of challenge of projecting air power, uh, which is inherently tethered to tankers that are not survivable. So just getting pushed further and further out of range to the point of being rendered um, almost irrelevant in, in these future fights. Um, you know, all, all of these things to say nothing of then, you know, kind of satellites uh, jammed or uh, lasered or shot out of orbit entirely, um, you know, kind of logistical movements from the homeland forward to bases, you know, completely contested every step of the way by cyber means or electronic attacks, or in certain cases, actual kinetic strikes. Um, these are the things that, uh, you know, when, when people talk about anti-access area denial, when they talk about contested environments, um, everything that the force was having to do was happening under um, extremely contested um, circumstances. And the losses were, were pretty considerable in terms of, uh, you know, uh, in terms of materiel as well as, uh, you know, human life. I can definitely see how that grabs people's attention. And that sort of turns us to the title of, of the book. You make an argument that we need a mindset that thinks about buying and developing kill chains rather than platforms. For those that haven't read the book, could you explain what you mean by kill chain? And, you know, perhaps with an analogous example from the civilian world too. Yeah, I, um, yeah, it, 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 it only became something as I wrote the book that I really kind of came to believe was was the right way of, of thinking about, um, you know, kind of framing everything that I was doing. And, you know, it, it, kill chain is an inherently military term. You know, there's a lot of different very technical or tactical definitions to it. Um, I was writing for a general audience, so I tried to make the term a little bit more um, uh, you know, kind of accessible. So the way the way I defined it in the book is a process of understanding what is happening uh, 
making decisions about what to do, and then taking actions that create effects um, violently, nonviolently, kinetically, non-kinetically. Um, you know, uh, action is a very broad term, um, but it's it's the means of essentially kind of uh, enacting your will. And again, you know, the kill chain sounds very uh, warlike, um, and it definitely focuses on that sort of conflict phase. But it also broadly applies to um, military operations um, short of conflict. So uh, the kinds of day-to-day pushing and shoving uh, that that our force and and our allies are engaged in every single day, and sort of this great power competition uh, that we're now that we're now in. Um, so you know, the, 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 I like the term because it's broadly applicable, and it actually explains what U.S. Uh, or what what militaries do uh, and how they generate advantage. Um, you know, my frustration as I spent time in the government was that we had created in the United States a military enterprise uh, that almost took for granted that the platforms and systems that we had been using for the past, you know, 25, 30 years um, would be the platforms and systems that would deliver us future military advantage. And we became so enamored of the systems and platforms themselves that we weren't actually focused on. Um, the real underlying source of military advantage, you know, which is this kill chain process. You know, it's not the specific things, the pieces of kit, vehicles or aircraft. Um, it is the ability to understand and decide and act at greater scales, at greater speeds, with less manpower, um, better and faster than our opponents. Um, and, and to me, I picked this uh, framing because I believe that this is actually the way to think about how these enabling technologies like artificial intelligence, like machine autonomy, are really going to change uh, kind of the character of warfare in the future. Um, I like it as well because it, you know, it, it actually makes the military a bit more accessible. Um, you know, in the United States, and, and I would imagine as well in the UK, you know, there's a large part of the citizenry that really just doesn't understand uh, the military. It hasn't served. It doesn't uh, spend a lot of time, uh, you know, kind of closely with people or with the military. And, you know, it can, for that reason, become um, very opaque, very inaccessible, very difficult to understand what those folks do. And, you know, to me, um, putting aside the term, the, the process of closing the kill chain, as the military refers to it, of understanding, deciding, and acting as the source of military advantage, as the actual outcomes we're trying to achieve is actually a very accessible term. I mean, this is something that uh, people who work in business do every single day. You know, they have to understand their markets. They have to understand their competitors. They have to understand themselves. They have to be able to make decisions, particularly in states of disruption, particularly when, um, you know, you're making decisions on the basis of uncertainty or, uh, you know, kind of limited amounts of information. Um, and then sort of making, taking actions um, about how you're going to compete in the market, how you're going to deliver products to market. Um, you know, these are things that, you know, maybe a bit of a stretch, but um, I think can make what the U.S. military, what militaries do um, more accessible to, you know, the, the majority of folks in our countries who maybe don't have as much experience dealing with, with them as we do. On that understand, decide, act, from the civilian world, what would be an example of a company that is doing that really well that you could sort of see crossover of how that might happen in uh, the military domain as well? Yeah, I mean, just, um, you know, you, you could pick any number of the, of the disruptors over the past 20 years um, who have disrupted on this basis. Um, you know, you, you pick uh, Uber and transportation, you pick, you know, Netflix or Spotify and entertainment or... Uh, you know, obviously Amazon when it comes to retail, um, you know, these are companies that understood the problem that people actually wanted to solve, which was how do not, uh, you know, how do I go to a nicer bookstore to buy books? Um, but how do I, how do I get access to information? How do I get access to books faster, cheaper? Um, and then thinking through how technologies uh, can really disrupt that process, the traditional process by which We've always done that, right? When I when I think about movement around town, the objective is not to drive a car. The objective is to get where I'm going, uh, cheaper, faster, more efficiently um, than before. So, you know, Uber or Lyft or one of these rideshare companies were able to take 
emerging technologies in the form of distributed systems, software platforms, um, huge access to data and machine learning, um, and actually turn people driving cars into ride shares for everybody. Um, so that the, the outcome that I'm seeking, right, which is not do I drive a car, it's how do I get where I'm going, can now be fulfilled in a totally different way. They understood what the problem was they were actually trying to solve. They made decisions about uh, building out a software platform that would enable them to do that. And then they pushed it out to market very effectively, bounding problems, growing incrementally, but nonetheless hugely disrupting um, you know, what was a very traditional enterprise dominated by either people driving cars or you know, kind of cab companies and, uh, and the like. In the book, you talk a lot about mission-centered innovation, Chris, focusing on the ends, closing the kill chain, rather than the means, i.e. buying bigger and better platforms. Now, some people in the USAF must have read your book, and they recently ran a large-scale exercise back in September looking at how they could protect an airfield against a cruise missile attack, something you mentioned in your first answer. Can you take me through what happened in that exercise? and what it means for DOD capability in the Asia-Pacific. Yeah, so this is um, uh, referring to an event that the uh, United States Air Force carried off last year as part of their Advanced Battle Management System uh, initiative. And it was a large exercise run in the United States, um, you know, really kind of across multiple phases. But, um, you know, when it, when it really came down to, uh, you know, kind of the kinetic phase of how do you close the kill chain against uh, you know, kind of cruise missiles that, um, again, are hugely concerning to the United States Air Force that is largely projecting power uh, in forward military bases, fixed infrastructure, um, things that are increasingly coming under greater and greater attack or uh, threat of attack and scales of attack in, in the form of just the very deep magazines of precision strike, long-range weapons that uh, great power competitors, primarily China, also Russia, um, are, are fielding really in great numbers. And, you know, the event was very much focused on can you take a uh, more sort of AI-enabled, uh, more autonomous approach to how you close that kill chain, sort of how you understand where those threats are, assuming they're going to be coming at you in multiples. Um, how do you enable human decision-making um, better and faster based on that available information? And then how do you enable sort of smaller numbers of human beings to command and control effects um, that, that push out actions that can, that can close that kill chain, in this case, you know, target and shoot down those uh, surrogate cruise missiles? You know, this was something that, um, that, that played out, um, you know, over the course of several hours, you know, against multiple uh, kind of surrogate cruise missiles. You know, the approach taken of, you know, kind of a lower cost, more distributed sort of sensor network um, you know, showed very well. I mean, it was it was very uh, promising. You know, again, truth and truth and advertising. The company that I work at now, Andrew, was very much a part of that. Um, I think the broad thing that I would say is, you know, for me, the the, the takeaway was certainly that this was uh, a better approach to this problem as we think about it in the Pacific, uh, also as we think about it in the European theater, where. You've got a lot of fixed infrastructure that's very important in terms of generating combat power, projecting combat power for deterrence, as well as, uh, God forbid, in crisis. Um, how you're going to need to think about defending that critical infrastructure, I think, is really going to come down to pushing larger amounts of sensors into the environment, networking them together, processing and fusing the information that they're generating through machine learning and computer vision techniques. Um, and then really just providing a human operator not with more screens to look at and sort of more work that they have to do, um, but actual uh, you know, decisions that they have to make based on sort of computer processed and fused information. Um, I think that's, that's definitely a, you know, a promising path for all of us in the future. But the bigger thing that I would say though is that type of approach needs to be brought to bear across the entirety of that kill chain, right? I mean, even as we're talking about defending uh, critical infrastructure from cruise missile attacks, we're on the far right side of that kill chain. A lot of things have already happened that have brought us to that point of crisis. Um, those weapons have been launched from 
some type of military platform. That platform was launched from some type of military base or forward location. Um, far to the left of that, you know, decisions were taken, actions were initiated, conversations were had um, on the part of the adversary to initiate this chain of events. We need to focus on how uh, we get all the way to the left of that. I mean, that's when, when the U.S. military is now talking about decision dominance. I think that's what they're referring to is, you know, if, if you're if you're focused on how do you kill cruise missiles that are, you know, inundating your airfields, you're already in a world of trouble. Um, you want to be able to get at that problem, you know, all the way to the other side of that kill chain when your adversary is thinking about, you know, initiating it. Um, when they're beginning to stage military systems, um, you know, load aircraft, you know, do other things that can generate indications and warning to us that something bad might be happening and we need to start, uh, you know, kind of responding and acting. Um, that's how I think we flip from being kind of put under the horns of a dilemma where we're playing defense uh, to really kind of understanding better and faster and sooner such that we can then go on the offensive not necessarily implying that we would go on the offensive kinetically, um, but do things that begin to create dilemmas for our opponents so that we never end up in a world uh, where we have to uh, essentially figure out how to prevent our bases from being overwhelmed by large amounts of cruise missiles that, uh, you know, just is an inherently risky proposition and will likely involve uh, some of those weapons getting through, some loss of life, some loss of equipment. Um, my, my basic proposition is if we're thinking about kill chains effectively, um, we're, we're actually preventing that outcome from ever happening because we've, we've enabled ourselves to understand, decide, and act you know, well in advance of uh, a state of crisis. So, Chris, one of my favorite standout stats in the book is when you call out the myth of the F-35 being a supercomputer. And uh, I think you note that its processor does about 400 billion calculations a second, yet the processor used in a car like a Tesla will do 320 trillion calculations a second. So something you can see drive past you on the street is 800 times more powerful than our most vaunted fighter jet. What does this say about the speed of commercial versus military innovation? And what does it mean for our procurement and partnership strategies. Yeah, and, and to be very clear, you know, I'm, uh, you know, the F-35 is an incredibly capable aircraft. Um, I, I think what I was seeking to do, and I think this was the purpose of your question, is just kind of put it in perspective um, in terms of, you know, this one particular technological area uh, that has really exploded over the past, you know, really the past 10 years of, you know, distributed computing, edge computing, um, embedded computing, you know, what, uh, you know, variously different uh, ways in which it's referred to. Um, but the onboard processors that are making sense of huge amounts of data, huge amounts of uh, sensor inputs that are being collected or generated um, by those vehicles. So um, I, I think like the, the big implication that I take away from this is um, what enabled that acceleration of, you know, uh, sort of technological development in the form of edge computer processing in the commercial world. Um, it was clear demand and, uh, you know, just a ruthlessly competitive market. Um, those are things that we, we actually don't have very often in the defense world. Um, when you look at the way we have tried to go about um, so much of our procurement, and I think the F-35 um, you know, deserves a lot of the criticism that it gets, but it's largely become sort of a poster child in this respect. Um, but, but the problem is not just the procurement process. I mean, the procurement process is bad, but it's actually also the processes to the left of that, of how we generate requirements for military technology, how we build programs and construct budgets uh, for those programs, and then ultimately how we go out and buy this stuff. Um, it's the entirety of it that, in my opinion, has become um, sort of almost impervious to disruption. Um, you know, we take human beings with their limited powers of foresight, and we drop them into the military, we drop them into the Department of Defense or the MOD, and we all of a sudden expect them to be able to predict the future on wildly unrealistic timelines. Um, we have people right now that are building budgets for, uh, you know, several years into the future, uh, that are creating requirements for programs that they expect to deliver in 2030 and 2035. 
Um, you know, I, I don't know how I'm going to be moving around town in two years. Um, and all I can say is, you know, the requirements that we are generating for military power 10 years from now are inevitably going to be wrong in the same way that when we sat down 20 years ago to try to generate requirements for an advanced fighter aircraft, um, you know, we have, we have created a process that is so slow, uh, that is so impervious to disruption that when our requirements turn out to be wrong and the procurement process elongates that even further, what, we're, what we end up doing is fielding technologies that have been overtaken by events by the time they even uh, get deployed. Um, and I think that, you know, this is an illustrative example that inside of that process, you saw the commercial world turning on far faster cycles, pushing out far more, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, significant capabilities. And it's not just that the commercial world has just lacked uh, the defense world in this, you know, one particular respect. It's that the defense world can't even get access to those technologies and bring them into the systems that they are building and fielding because they have been locked at the platform level um, such that modernization also becomes an elongated, slow uh, you know, um, uh, process that's, that's very difficult to take all of the sub-elements of a military system and modernize those quickly independently of the platform. Uh, so it's a long way of saying that uh, you know, this process that we have of how we even think about what military systems we're going to need for the future uh, has become uh, so archaic and so, uh, you know, kind of out of date um, that we're incapable of moving at the speed of technology. And really what that means in this highly competitive environment that we now face is that we're increasingly at risk of getting our requirements wrong being behind the threat, being behind technology and fielding systems that are obsolete and overtaken by events by the time they even come out the other end of the procurement system. Uh, this is just something that we can't afford to do anymore. Um, you know, 20, 25 years ago, perhaps when we were so far ahead, uh, you know, we could afford this kind of a process. Um, but, but in the highly competitive world that we're in right now, uh, it is just going to accelerate the erosion of our military uh, technological advantage. And it's going to, you know, it's going to end up in the United States um, just being surpassed by our uh, opponents. Chris, that's great. And uh, a couple of follow-ups on that, if I may. The first one is your point about, you know, sort of procurement based on the misplaced faith of predictability. It was wonderful to see that get amplified by Steve Blank and his team over in um, Stanford for their class. Um, so really good to see the sort of uh, spotlight get shined on that. And then secondly, to your, to your point about, you know, how do we create ruthless demand in a competitive market? I think, you know, in the book, you argue that senior leaders need to create incentives that rapidly get these latest technologies into the hands of military operators and allow them to experiment, you know, to allow those operators to learn through trial and error, find out what works, what capabilities they could have and would want, and how they might use those new technologies to operate in new ways or going back to the you know, title of your book, all with the aim of you know, how do you close the kill chain more effectively. And the, you know, the exciting idea that sort of caught my eye in the book was that you say the best way to do this is to let the key stakeholders compete against each other, you know, a form of selection. What does that, what does that competition or selection look like? Yeah, so this is something I've been thinking a lot about since, uh, since the book came out. Um, and, and basically where, where I've arrived at is the following. Um, I believe that, you know, defense is always going to be just different than the commercial world. Um, you know, but it's not going to, it doesn't need to be as different as we've made it. And, and I think this is kind of my frustration with, with national defense right now is just, you know, we, we have a system that treats almost everything the same. Um, that has a very industrial age approach to how we acquire military capability under the assumption that the types of systems that are going to be essential for the future are going to be large capital intensive programs uh, that not many companies in America or the UK or the world are going to be able to build and deliver. They're going to come through very long and costly research and development cycles. You're not going to buy many of those systems when you do buy them. And then once you've bought them, you're going to keep them for a very long time, um, you know, decades in some cases. And, and that system 
you know, is, is largely how we built the military that we have. And, you know, it's still going to be applicable for certain classes of military capability, you know, large ships or aircraft carriers or really advanced aircraft, um, you know, those kinds of things are, are going to have to be built through that model. On, on the other end of the spectrum, you're going to have just purely commercial items that are going to be no different for the military to use than, you know, the, the consumer world or the commercial world. Um, and they should just go out and buy the exact same thing because I mean, paper clips, toilet paper, Microsoft Word, whatever. Um, to me, it's this middle class of capability where the barrier to entry is a lot lower, where you could have a lot more companies competing to build and deliver systems. Um, where the systems themselves are going to be inherently defense, uh, you know, kind of capabilities, um, weapons, missiles, electronic attack, um, unmanned systems of all different kinds, um, aircraft and ships and underwater vehicles and uh, ground systems. Um, you know, they're defense systems. Um, they're they're complex technologically, but they're 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 not aircraft carriers, right? They're they're not long range bombers. Um, they're not ICBMs. They're, they're things that if the government actually recognized that as the sole demander of national defense, um, it could create incentives to draw those new entrants in. Um, you could begin to create markets. And I think that's basically my belief is that uh, governments need to do a better job in national defense of creating the incentives for market creation so that the way I would envision this, um, again, I think that we... Uh, we're, we're kind of radically overthinking the problem um, in the U.S. in particular. Um, the way to incentivize innovation and disruption is to actually buy new capabilities more often um, with the expectation that uh, I want to push more of the research and development cost and burden onto industry. I want to incentivize them to bring their own capital to bear to build new systems. Um, I want them to be able to compete on a regular basis every year or every two years um, on a level playing field based on real performance outcomes uh, to see what's best. So just pick a class of systems. I mean, pick loitering munitions, um, which there's a lot of talk about a desire for, particularly in the aftermath of Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, that is an inherently defensive system. Uh, it's an expendable system. It's technologically complex, but you could imagine a lot of different companies that could, that could build it. Um, it's an expendable system in that it's flying a one-way mission. Um, so why not set up a system where every year or every two years, the government says, we are going to hold uh, a competition. Um, we are going to allow industry that has viable capability to show up and demonstrate it. We're going to collect data on a level playing field, and we're going to actually award contracts on the basis of best performance in that year. Um, and then we're going to come right back the next year or two years from now, having bought the thing that won this time, and we're going to buy new again. Um, so now the incentive on industry is use your own money to develop better capabilities. And the incentive is that if you do disrupt, if you do build a better system, you will actually be rewarded for it quickly based on outperforming uh, you know, what is currently best in breed. So you've now incentivized disruption um, and, and, and you've incentivized best performance, whether that's coming from a traditional defense company, a non-traditional defense company, uh, some company nobody's ever heard of. The point should be getting the best outcome, getting the best performing system, and then creating an incentive to constantly be buying new and modern systems um, and then creating incentives for industry to come up with, you know, kind of orthogonal approaches to solve those problems differently. Um, I, I think that's actually doable. Um, I think that it's something that we can do more often for far larger segments of our military capability than we do today. It's not gonna work for everything. It shouldn't be applied to certain things, um, but it to me feels like the way we should be approaching more and more uh, of these kinds of future-oriented capabilities that, we're, that, we, that we know we need as far as a way of generating advantage for the future. Chris, uh, to me, it sounds like the first MVP should be some sort of Hunger Games for loitering munitions. So uh, more than welcome to invite Andrew over to the UK for that. Awesome. I think that's right. JK, over to you. So, Chris, you, you recently left government and, and moved to Andrew, a, a new, albeit well-funded, defence startup. 
This despite you outlining the hurdles to Newmarket entrance in the defence sector. So what tempted you there? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, when I when I left government, um, you know, I I knew I wanted to leave government. Um, I, I'd had a great run in the Senate. I had had the opportunity to work on the Armed Services Committee for nearly a decade, working for Senator McCain for nearly a decade. Um, there really wasn't anything else that I wanted to do uh, in the legislative branch, and you know, there there. There really wasn't anything that I wanted to uh, to go into the executive branch to do, despite opportunities. Um, I knew I, I wanted a new challenge. I mean, I I wanted to move away from government. I wanted to get deeper into uh, these kinds of advanced technologies that I personally believe were going to be that needed to be uh, really significant for our future. Um, and I, I knew I wanted to go work on these problems, uh, you know, from an industry perspective. Um, but I, but I wanted to do it in a non-traditional way, um, and and it's not because I I, I don't think highly of our uh, traditional defense industry. I, I actually quite the opposite. I mean, I know very intimately what those companies do, what they deliver, um, and those are exquisite uh, exquisite systems that have generated military advantage for us for generations. Um, for me, though, I wanted to go to a place that was fundamentally. Um, a startup, right? That is that is that is just purely creating itself now, looking into the future, rather than bringing you know kind of years or decades of you know legacy systems approaches um, business with it. Um, I really wanted to go to a place that was that was focused on um, what do we need to build now uh, to create military advantage in the future. How do we take these technologies that are going to be so important, like artificial intelligence, like autonomous systems, and build new kinds of capabilities from them, rather than, as, as I think often gets uh, kind of teed up in the United States, thinking about how these technologies can be kind of retrofitted onto systems or platforms that we've had for many, many years. Um, that, to me, was an exciting challenge. Um, I was excited to be a part of something new and young and growing. And, uh, you know, it, I, I knew kind of intellectually that there were going to be a huge amount of challenges associated with that, uh, you know, as far as uh, a new entrant trying to, um, you know, to, 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 to be disruptive in a very uh, kind of traditional industry or a traditional sector. Um, you know, the very long sort of timelines on which, uh, you know, kind of defense procurement operates, as well as just, you know, all of the entrenched political and bureaucratic uh, challenges and impediments that come along with doing this work, uh, you know, in sort of the federal space, um, you know, but at the same time, you know, this was very much for me about, um, you know, kind of practicing what I preached or, you know, trying to help deliver the things that I believe and had believed for very long uh, were going to be essential for, uh, for, our, for our militaries in the future. And, you know, it's been a wild adventure. I've been there now for a bit over two years um, have learned a ton, enjoying every single day that I'm there, getting to work with a phenomenal group of people. Um, you know, it is uh, it is intellectually and emotionally taxing, uh, you know, to uh, to to actually be doing this in the trenches day after day. Uh, but I wouldn't have it any other way. And what can the MOD and DOD, with all their bureaucracy, do to to keep hold of its of, of their mavericks, perhaps their their Chris Broses in the MOD? How do they empower them to innovate to solve the def uh, the challenges defence faces internally, or, or can't they? No, I, I think they absolutely can, and I think that it's 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 actually precisely analogous to what I was saying. We need to do with industry in terms of how we create incentives. Um, you know, I'm I'm a big believer in uh, you know kind of competition and uh, kind of outcome oriented performance. Um, I, you know, I, I work at a startup, I work at a non-traditional defense company, but at the end of the day, the best capability, the best performing idea, a concept, uh, or, or system needs to win. My frustration is that at a systemic level, um, we actually don't set up, um, we don't set up a process that enables us to see um, what truly is best um, and really evaluate ourselves and evaluate the best ideas and the best performing systems that are out there, you know, and I think what's true from an industry standpoint is equally true in the government where, 
You have a lot of people um, inside of military institutions, inside of defense institutions, who have uh, incredibly creative, entrepreneurial, disruptive approaches to problems. But too often, the incentives don't exist for those folks um, to actually be able to compete fairly with you know, more traditional ideas, traditional ways of doing things. Um, and, and to a large extent, this is understandable. I mean, you don't, you don't expect bureaucracies to be disruptive. Uh, that's not why we have bureaucracies, and frankly, that's not what we want them to do. But we have to have alternative pathways. We have to have alternative mechanisms and approaches that, that create incentives for those internal disruptors uh, who are not necessarily building technology, but the disrupting at the level of concepts of operation or strategy or the employment of military force, um, or, or oftentimes how different capabilities can be brought together, leveraged together to create totally different uh, kind of solutions to problems. There has to be mechanisms for those kinds of people to be able to take a crack uh, at an existing problem. And, you know, I think uh, there, there are examples, you know, where, where we try that, where we seek to do that, but, it, but it, it feels way too ad hoc. It feels way too reversible. And I think, you know, if, if we're talking fundamentally about a competition for talent, um, both in the private sector as well as in government, um, we have to create incentives for uh, these very disruptive thinkers to really have an opportunity uh, to, 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 to challenge and compete against traditional and sort of existing and received wisdom. Um, and I think ultimately as institutions, that's what we need as a way of checking ourselves and as a way of determining whether the ideas that we think are right are actually going to hold up or whether there's a better approach. Um, this is doable. Um, it's possible to create incentives that, uh, you know, kind of take people in the bureaucracy slightly outside of it and give them an opportunity to just ruthlessly go after the traditional ways of doing things. And if they show that they can outperform on the basis of a level playing field, you know, actual performance, uh, if they can come up with better ideas, better approaches, better concepts of operation, um, I would hope that our institutions would embrace that because that's the only way we're going to stay ahead in the future. Uh, we have to create those kinds of mechanisms internally the same way we need to you know, do a better job of creating them externally. So on the subject of disruption, Chris, um, one of the big areas of disruption over the coming years is going to be autonomous decision making. Now, in the book, you don't shy away from the topic. And, and some would argue your thoughts are controversial on this and, and others would say they're pragmatic. Can you take us through your thinking on, on where you think the autonomous weapons debate will be in 20 years' time? Uh, 20 years' time. Um, I, 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 I would hope uh, that we will have come to uh, you know, kind of embrace increasingly autonomous systems, rely upon them more. Um, but, I, but I think the way that I, would, that I would frame the journey that I hope that we will take over that 20-year period um, is much more incremental, um, you know. So to to your question, I, I hope that my approach is pragmatic. That's very much what I what I intended it to be. You know, my my basic belief is that um, the ways that we're going to figure out how to uh, think about how we would want to use, how we would not want to use, um, how we would come to trust uh, increasingly intelligent and increasingly autonomous machines, is we're going to have to build them and use them. Uh, we're going to have to build them and use them currently based on what they're able to do today. So that is going to be, you know, you know, far more limited tasks and applications, um, but very real things that, that can ultimately make uh, human uh, operations, human decision-making, human understanding of the environment better. Um, you know, I, I think the, the basic kind of uh, approach that I take to it is – you know, we talk a lot in the defense world about human-machine teaming. And I, I don't like the term teaming because it suggests to me that the human and the machine are equal, uh, that they're somehow kind of co-equal teammates. Um, and, and the frame that I kind of prefer that I talk about in the book is really one of command and control, um, which is a very familiar concept to militaries and really kind of you know, articulates the hierarchical relationship between people and military organizations, between superior agents and subordinate actors. And I actually think that's the right way to think about 
the relationship between human beings uh, and increasingly autonomous systems now and into the future. Um, these systems need to be subordinated to human will, um, human intent, and human accountability. Um, they ultimately need to be taking tasks um, away from human beings, performing those tasks on behalf of human beings under human supervision or oversight. Um, but it very much uh, needs to function in a hierarchical sense. Um, and that as those systems become increasingly capable of doing more, uh, humans can come to trust them to do more. But it's going to have to be done on the basis of performance um, and accountability. Um, and it's the same structure that we use to evaluate whether human beings or machines are uh, safe to put into military jobs now. Um, can they perform these tasks predictably, reliably, effectively, safely for themselves and others? Um, that's how, you know, it's a, it's a laborious process of training, um, of testing, and then through that process, developing trust that your subordinate, your subordinate actors can actually do the tasks or perform the tasks that they're being given. In the context of autonomous systems, um, that's going to need to start now with the very limited tasks that these systems are going to be able to perform, which are not the big and scary things that I think a lot of people envision, nor are they the really flashy and sexy applications of autonomous systems that I think a lot of military leaders want. Um, you know, a, a good example of it, I think, is the way Tesla has approached autonomous driving. Um, they didn't set out immediately to build a fully realized, fully self-driving car. They started with what humans do today, which is drive cars. And they created a software platform uh, to collect all of that data and begin automating you know, limited features of driving. So now, this, now the car can drive down the highway uh, you know, under human supervision. And next, it will be able to do something uh, slightly more capable. Um, but what that's done is it's actually a more pragmatic approach to change. Um, because you're you're recognizing that these technologies are still in their infancy, even though they can deliver real capability now, that's where you need to start. Um, but then you're also bringing the human being along through the process of change because so much of it is going to be based on their trust in what the system can actually do. And the only way that they're going to develop that trust, as well as the policy and ethical questions that need to be answered uh, around that, is, is by using it. Um, you know, but my concern is that, you know, to your question over 20 years, um, we're going to become so paralyzed by the very real and significant ethical and policy questions that we have to answer that we're never actually going to build anything. Um, and my approach is more, let's start building incrementally. Let's start, let's start focusing on building autonomous systems for what technology can deliver today. Uh, let's enable human operators to understand them better and use them and build some trust in them. And then let's see the, you know, what, what, let's bound that problem, solve it, and then move on to the next, uh, the next problem. But we have to do it all through a framework of a human-centric design, um, how these systems are going to enable human understanding and human decision-making and human action. Um, but, but recognizing that the great value that these systems can return is actually enabling humans to do the higher value work that we want human beings to do, to do, you know, to engage more of their cognitive space on ethical decision-making and operational decision-making, not the very kind of technical and mundane and manual and repetitive tasks that all too often people in the military get saddled with um, for, for lack of better technology. Uh, to me, that is a fundamental misallocation of human talent. Um, and I think the real value of autonomous systems is they will be able to do more things that machines do better than people in order for human beings to do the things that we want them to do and need them to do, especially in the conduct uh, of military operations where you need and want and will always need uh, human beings to be at the center of that moving forward. Chris, your point there about human-centric design, you know, some would say that special forces is probably, you know, the archetypal operator-centric or human-centric organization. What role do you see them playing in this, in this digital future? 
Um, you know, I, I think special operations um, will probably be the leading edge of how we define that future and how we get there. One, because they um, are an integrated force. Um, they are bringing all of the different components to bear. Um, they are bringing all of the different domains to bear uh, or together. Um, and, and, and they are out there actually solving operational problems. Um, you know, my prediction for the future is that the kind of deployment tempo of special operations, uh, you know, it, 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 may, it may slow down a little bit, um, but special operations forces are going to continue to deploy. They're going to continue to be out there on the leading edge, confronting um, the hardest operational problems that we're going to see, um, what emerging technologies are doing to disrupt that. Um, and and to, to the point that I was just making about Tesla, I would argue that's actually where we need to start. Um, you know, we need to start with uh, current military operations, current problems that we're facing, um, where these kinds of technologies need to be designed and delivered um, to enable those human beings to work faster and more effectively and safer um, on the operations that they are actually out conducting right now. Um, I think that's really going to be the place where we're going to determine what works and what doesn't what's real and what's not, um, what these technologies can do and should do and what they can do and should not do. Um, I'm, I'm a big believer that this is going to have to be worked out in practice, um, thoughtfully, um, consciously, um, but nonetheless worked out in practice. And um, special operations forces, I think, are going to be the leading edge and to some extent sort of the laboratory where these technologies and the ideas that they support and enable are really going to be fleshed out and hashed out in the coming years. And I think we should consciously view special operations forces that way um, as, as you know, a, a role that they have always played on behalf of the general purpose force, which is being that leading edge of innovation, of new technology, of new operational concepts, you know, proving out what works, and then sort of bringing that back and scaling it for the rest of the force where applicable. Um, I actually think, uh, you know, special operations forces really need to be, you know, kind of the central lens through which we view how we're going to kind of pathfind our way into this new future, both in terms of the technologies that are going to get us there, as well as the operational concepts that we're going to have to rely upon. We hope you enjoyed this bonus episode with Chris Bros. We'd like to thank AADP, the Army's Advanced Development Programme, and the RAF Medical Services for allowing us the journalistic freedom to create this podcast. The thoughts are our own and do not represent the MOD or these organisations. If you've enjoyed this episode of Reimagining Defence, we'd be over the moon if you could share it with a friend and leave us a five-star review. Until next time, take care.